Good morning. Hey, like Jay said, if you're a guest with us, we're glad that you're here with us this morning. If you have a Bible, you can open it up. We're going to be in Psalm 119. I promise we won't preach that whole chapter, uh, but we are going to uh, camp out there for a little bit today. We're in a series called What We Believe, and uh, we're, we're talking through different core doctrines of our church. And so we started with, what do we believe about God the Father? And then we talked about, what do we believe about Jesus? Last week we talked, hey, what, do, what is it that we believe about the Holy Spirit, the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives, what does He do, how does He lead us and guide us. If you were here with us last week, we ended our services with a pretty important and powerful time of prayer. And uh, we were praying over two individuals. One, uh, her name was Liz Dale. She was a former staff member here at our church, and she was a children's minister and had a deep love uh, for kids. And she was sick and in the hospital And in addition to that, we were praying for Carla May, who's connected to a family here in our church and uh, was also sick and in the hospital. And we were praying for God to heal them and for him to do something. And later on that afternoon, last Sunday, within 25 minutes of one another, both ladies passed away. And I'm driving up to Fort Wayne last Sunday to be with the family um, of Carla. And it kind of hits me pretty incredible, the lives of these two ladies. Both of them were single uh, their whole lives and had given themselves to pouring into and loving kids. They both served as children's ministers, um, and uh, they both passed away within 20 minutes of each other. It just kind of hit me. Man, that's, that's pretty incredible. And then all week, we planned for and got ready uh, for the services, and on Friday, um, attended here, Liz's celebration of life service, and we celebrated her life. And then I got to drive up to Fort Wayne and be there for Carla's celebration of life as well. And uh, both in one day, it just kind of hit me, I'm driving home on Friday night from um, Fort Wayne, and it just kind of hits me, man, there's this word I hadn't been able to shake all week. Thinking about both of these ladies and what their lives were and what they gave. And this idea of legacy hits me. They left an incredible legacy, both of these ladies. Whether it was standing in line during Liz's visitation and listening to testimony after testimony about the impact she made on someone's life or watching people that no longer are here at New Hope come back for this celebration of life and you see that they are who they are because they attended VBS and spent time with her. Or being up there at Carla's and listening to testimony after testimony during the service of the impact this woman had on lives. Just hit me. Legacy. And the reason it hit me is because our legacy is important. We should all think with the end in mind. We should all uh, concentrate and have some of our thought processes, our intentions, our plans kind of formed around this idea that we're all going to have a legacy and we're all going to leave a legacy at the end of our lives. And this applies to what we're talking about today because what we're going to talk about today is so extremely important because it's so much a part of the legacy that you would desire to leave And it's vitally important we understand uh, how important it is for us to pass this on to the next generation. How important it is for us to not just understand it for ourselves, but to give it to the generation behind us. And some of you might be saying, well, I don't have kids. That's okay. Neither one of these ladies did either. And they had a tremendous impact on the generation that came up behind them. Your legacy matters. Your legacy is extremely important. I was watching as I prepared to talk to you about what we believe about the Bible so watching and listening and reading different resources, came across one preacher talking about how he is working with a, a small group of people out, out at Fuller Seminary. And they're working to try to understand why it is 
that our young people are being secularized on college campuses. And based on all the research that they did, and they did quite a bit of research, they came to the conclusion that we're, our kids are not being secularized on college campuses. They're actually being secularized in the home before they're ever sent to a college campus. Right? They arrive on the campuses already not having the priority that we would hope that they might have. And they're learning it at home. See, we're choosing, their conclusion was, we're choosing extracurricular activities and sports over and above the gathering of God's people. And we're not prioritizing coming and being and gathering with God's people and then wondering why our kids don't prioritize it later on in their lives. And look, I feel this personally. My son Caleb turns 10 years old today. He loves basketball. He loves it. He's on a travel basketball team, and we travel around and watch him play all the time. It's a joy. And there are probably some days where Caleb would prefer having a game than having to get up and come to church, okay? If he's just being honest with you. Now, he loves coming to church here, but there are probably some days if he could have a game and go play basketball, he'd probably love to do that instead. But guess what Caleb doesn't get to choose? (laughs) Caleb doesn't get to make that decision. Caleb doesn't get to choose what he's going to do when he wakes up in the morning, right? Because he's 10, Caleb doesn't get to choose what he eats for dinner. Caleb doesn't get to choose what he's going to wear to school. Otherwise, he'd wear shorts in 20-degree weather because he's a son after his father's own heart. Okay? We know he can't do that, and so he doesn't get to choose that. And this preacher, he dropped this line. His name's Matt Chandler, and he said this, and this hit home. He said, a halfway devotion to Christ in this generation leads to full rebellion to him in the next. Think about that. A halfway devotion to Jesus in this generation leads to a full rebellion of Jesus in the next generation. You see, we see things for our kids that at 10 years old, my son could not possibly see for himself. And the legacy that I want to leave for him is a legacy that goes beyond what he's doing when he's 10 years old. So we should not be surprised if our kids don't want to follow a God that they didn't see was a priority for us to follow when they were growing up. We should not be surprised if our kids don't want to read a Bible that they never watched us read while they were growing up. We should not be surprised if our kids no longer want to worship and attend the gathering of God's people as a priority in their life if every time something on the calendar popped up, we didn't choose to do so either. Look, I'm for you. And I promise you I am. I am for you. I want your family to be incredible. But I don't ever want to avoid talking about hard stuff here. I don't ever want to avoid talking about the difficult things when we gather together and we study what God's word has to say. And that's why I'm for you, because we're going to look at something today and we're going to try to understand why the Bible should be a priority in our life. Now, that's a really hard thing to talk about in one sermon, okay? It really is. I mean, we could do a whole series on the Bible, but today we're doing one sermon. So I'm going to answer two questions for you. One is, we will get to the question of the sermon title, what we believe about the Bible. But before we talk about what we believe about the Bible, it's probably important for us to answer, why do we believe the Bible? Why do we believe what the Bible has to say? Why do we believe that it's trustworthy? And so let's begin to uh, walk through some of this. I don't know if you know some of these statistics about the Bible, but um, the Bible was written over a 1,500-year span of time. Okay? So it was composed over 1,500 years by 40 different authors and contains three different languages and was written on three different continents. The Bible was the first book ever printed on the printing press. The King James Bible was the first one ever printed on the printing press. And every year since, if you look at bestsellers and the books that sell the most, the Bible sells more than the next bestseller by far. 
It is a widespread book, a well-known book, and if, 95 per, if, if every person on the planet could read and write, then 95% of the earth's population would be able to read the Bible. It is a popular, well-known, well-distributed book. But you and I both know this, just because something's popular doesn't make it true, right? So this past week, we put out on our social media this article and the article kind of explains to you why the Bible can be historically reliable. And I'm going to pull a very, it's a, the author used a very uh, common held test that you put um, historical documents up against to determine whether or not they're valid. And so why we believe the Bible's trustworthy, I'm just going to walk you through three of these briefly. The first one, the first test that you put any document up against is the bi- bibliographic test, which simply says, is this document historically reliable? So if we were to take the Bible and we were to look at it, we would say, hey, is the document of the Bible historically reliable? Has it stood the test of time? Over time, does it, does it line up? And you would be, um, hopefully, you would, uh, you would be happy to learn that the, we have more of the original documents to support the historical reliability of the scriptures than we do any other document in the history of the world. I mean, you look at Plato, the writings of Julius Caesar, things that we teach and advocate, and we should. Those are, we have good documents. We have... Some, some original documents that point to its historical reliability. We have over 5,000 original Greek manuscripts that point to the original, the, the, the historical reliability of the Bible. The Bible, the Bible, here's your encouragement, has stood the test of time. Over and over and over again, it has stood the test of time. Well, the second test you'd put it up against is called the internal test. Can we prove that the writings of the Bible were actually composed by eyewitnesses, people that actually saw what took place. And this is really important because you want the people that are talking about the events that took place to have actually witnessed them. And if you study the, the historical reliability of the scriptures, you come to learn that we have original documents that were produced within 40 years of the life of Jesus. There's no other document that has it that well. I mean, some of them are 150, 500, 600, 700 years, and you're still thinking within 500 years, that's really great. Within 40 years, as a matter of fact, one atheist historian, atheist historian, believes that the Gospel of Mark was written within a decade of the life of Jesus. So think about this. This is why that's important. Because if the Bible was written within that time frame of the events taking place, that means when the writings were coming to be, the eyewitnesses were still around. So if you were going to start a movement around something that wasn't true, wouldn't you try to wait until the eyewitnesses died off? Or that they couldn't come in and say, hey, hey, really, you're a good writer, but that's not true. We were there, we saw it, that's not how it went down. And yet there's none of that. Over and over and over again, the Bible has stood the test of criticism. Over and over and over again, the Bible's been critiqued. And over and over and over again, it stood the test of criticism. Well, the third test you would put a document up against is called the external test. What that says is, how does it line up with archaeology? As we unearth some of this history and we learn from some of these artifacts, how does it line up with the content of this document? And so for us, if we look at the Bible, how does archaeology support the Bible? You might be encouraged to know that over and over and over again, archaeology has unearthed all kinds of artifacts that support the geography mentioned in the Bible. So the Bible mentions a city, and then geography and archaeology, uh, we unearthed some archaeological findings that support the content of the Bible in that city. But what I find more encouraging than just the content of the, or the geography is the content. 
So if an author were to mention, hey, so-and-so served during this person's reign at this time during this year, archaeology then unearths and supports the timestamp that some of the biblical authors are supporting, which tells me over and over and over again, the Bible has not only stood the test of time and criticism, but integrity. What it said happened, archaeology has proved actually did happen. And so the Bible over and over and over again withstands all of these criticisms. And that brings us to this, yeah, that might, hey, Rob, now you're telling me it's trustworthy. I get it. So the Bible can be trusted as a historically reliable document. But what is it about the Bible that you believe? What is it about the Bible? Now that we understand why you trust it, but what is it that you're putting your trust in when you talk about the Bible? I'm glad you asked this morning. And we're going to be in Psalm 119, and we're going to start in verse 9, and I'm going to read you some scripture, and it'll help us come to understand what it is we believe about the Bible. Verse 9 says this. By the way, uh, I didn't say this to first and second service because our student minister wasn't in the room. He is now, but it reminded me that he came and kind of revamped our student ministry. And parents, if you have a middle school or high school kid, you want them to be a part of it. He has formed the entire ministry around what we're about to read. Okay? So this whole idea of pursuing God and the pursuit of God is formed around this passage. So verse 9. How can a young person stay pure? By obeying your word. I've tried to find you. Don't let me wander from your commandments. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I praise you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. I've recited aloud all the regulations that you have given us. I've rejoiced in your laws as much as in riches. I will study your commandments and reflect on your ways. I will delight in your decrees and not forget your word. So if you have your bulletin, uh, we put a little acronym on the bulletin today so you can take some notes. If you didn't, don't worry. We're going to put it up on the screen. Feel free to take pictures, take notes, whatever's going to help you. This acronym, while it's not going to be an exhaustive understanding of Scripture, it's going to cover some things that really help us understand what it is we believe about the Bible. Okay? And it's just an easy way for you to take what you're going to hear today and take it with you. Now, here's my fear when it comes to the way we do church. My fear would be that you would show up, sit in a seat, listen to me or David, and bank everything on that. That's not the point of why we meet. It's not so that we can become some great communicator and develop a great platform, none of that. This is an equipping place. According to Ephesians chapter 4, when we gather, it's so that you can be equipped to scatter. So when you wake up on Monday morning and begin worshiping the Lord with your life and everything that you do, you have what you need to get through that week based on the gathering of God's people on Sunday. This is just one of the tools to help you do that. Just a simple acronym to remind you what it is about the Bible that we believe. The first acronym based on this passage would be sufficiency. The first letter in the acronym is S, and it's sufficiency. We believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. Now, when you hear the word sufficient, it means you don't need to add to it. You don't need to take away from it. It's sufficient. It gets the job done. We believe that everything that you need is there. Okay? It contains everything that you need to understand salvation and what it looks like to live a godly life. We don't need any new revelation. Now, many people, they want a new word from the Lord. And they might say, hey, as I'm following Jesus, I want to hear something new from I need a new word. You don't need a new word. According to the sufficiency of Scripture, the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture, God has revealed himself here. You just need more of this. You need to spend more time in here. Right? You need to understand what the Bible is teaching you. It is completely sufficient. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete. So you want your life to be complete, it's an understanding the sufficiency of Scripture. Equipped, right? That's our word, equipped, to go and live out this godly life for every good 
work. There's this old Reformation phrase that it said, sola scriptura. And the idea was that it, it means scripture alone. That's all you need to understand what God wants to say. Scripture alone. But it doesn't say scripture by itself. So it is okay to use other resources to help you better understand scripture. But you have to come to understand scripture, not just those other resources. I like the way Kevin DeYoung says it. He's a a scholar. He says it this way. To affirm the sufficiency of scripture is not to suggest that the Bible tells us everything that we want to know about everything. Not every little detail. But it does tell us everything we need to know about what matters the most. Scripture does not give exhaustive information on every single subject, but in every subject on which it speaks, it says only what is true. And it is truth, and in its truth, we have enough knowledge to turn from sin, find our Savior, make good decisions, please God, and get to the root of our deepest problems. So what he's saying is it's not going to talk about everything. I don't know if you know this, but when people say all of truth is in the Bible, no, it's not. There's truth outside of the Bible, right? Two plus two equals four. Ever read that in the Bible? Never read that in the Bible, okay? Two plus two, it's never been written out just like that. You're like, well, when Noah did the animals, okay, three plus three equals six, okay? All right? It's, it, not all truth is written in there. However, everything written in there is true. Everything written in the Bible is true. Everything God wants to communicate to us that he has revealed about himself is absolutely and totally true. There are truths outside of Scripture. However, everything that we read in the Bible is true. Scripture is all that you need, and it is sufficient to form your life around. The next part of this acronym would be clarity. So we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture. So this is, this is an idea that Scripture is clear enough. Everything you need to know about turning from sin and, and understanding who Jesus is, it's in the Bible. You have everything that you need right here in the Bible. Now, it doesn't mean that every verse of the Bible is going to be understandable to you. Amen? You've read through the scriptures and you come to understand there are sometimes I feel confused. It's not clear to me. The, the doctrine of the clarity of scripture is not saying that you understand every part of the Bible, but it is saying that ordinary people using ordinary means can accurately understand enough of what must be known in order to follow Jesus. There's going to be times when you don't fully understand what you're reading, but you're going to always be able to access enough to make a decision to follow Jesus with your life. This really hit home for me when I was getting ready to move away from Florida uh, and move to Illinois for graduate school. And there's this gap of time where my wife and I needed a place to live. And so we decided to move in with the most intimidating people that have ever walked the planet, her grandparents. Okay? And her grandpa has always intimidated me because, in a good way, not bad intimidation. He's not like a mean guy. It's just, man, he's who I want to be when I'm his age. And he was a Bible college president. He was a Bible college professor. He's just really an incredible guy. And so we move in with him. And what got me is every morning I'd wake up, I'd walk by the kitchen, and I would see, there he is, there's Glenn, reading the scriptures to his wife. Every morning, without fail. And I thought to myself, man, that's awesome for marriage, but what hit me even more than that was the way in which he was reading it. I mean, the tone of his voice. He was reading the Bible as though he'd never read it before. It was still new to him. It was incredible to me. Unbelievable. It was still new. It was still fresh. Here's a guy that left for Bible college when he was 16. Okay? And he was still reading the Bible as though it was this brand new thing to him. Look, here, here's the thing. Uh, we, we are never going to know enough. That's the beauty of Christianity. We're never going to be masters of Christianity. I love it. You study worldviews and other philosophies, and their, the, their book, what they would call their holy book, is not written like a love letter from a creator to his children. 
Right? And it doesn't say of itself that it's living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword and something that you can interact with for the rest of your life and never become a master of it, which means for the rest of your life, you're always going to be able to learn and grow and develop and be shaped by what you encounter in God's word. It's incredible to me. I always thought it was lame when I graduated seminary. They gave me a master of divinity. I think it's the lamest title ever. Who's the master of the divine? Like, I'm, What? Why would you call it that, right? Because the whole premise is that I'll never be the master. I'm always going to be able to be shaped and molded. And the Bible, as you grow, will always become more and more clear to you. And you'll wrestle with this. My wife wrestled with this. In her 20s, she really wrestled with whether or not she was old enough and understood enough to have made the decision to be baptized as an 8-year-old. Right? And her dad, as we wrestled through this, her dad really gave us some really good counsel. He said, hey, you didn't know everything, but you knew enough. I was there, and you knew enough to make this decision. I was there. I listened to you, and I, you knew what it taught, and you knew enough. Do you know more now in your 20s and into your 30s now than you did when you were 8? Yeah, that's the point. That the clarity becomes more and more clear the more time that you spend with God's Word. The third thing we believe about the Bible is the authority of Scripture. Now, this one's hard, okay? This is the hardest one, actually. We believe in the authority of the Scriptures, and the reason why it's hard is because if you're like me, you don't like authority. I don't like being told what to do. I really am not good at that, okay? In addition to that, I found that in, with evangelism, trying to share the good news with people that I love and care about, they don't like being told what to do. They don't like the idea of authority. So the idea that we would come and say, we believe that you have to submit all of your life, every part of your life, your money, your idea of sex, your idea of marriage, your idea of everything in life, you submit it to the authority of the scriptures. Where the scriptures speak, I'm going to submit and obey. Man, that idea, people don't really like it. And so what we do, if you're like me, is we begin to make excuses. Like, um, well, have you looked at culture? The Bible must not be a cultural book, and so I'm not going, it's just dated, it doesn't really apply anymore, and so I don't have to apply this, and so we pick and choose where we want to submit to the authority of the scriptures and what we kind of like and what we don't like. That's what we do. And maybe you're familiar with the author Anne Rice. I don't know if, you, if that name rings a bell. She became famous for writing Interview with a Vampire and some other things. Well, she grew up Catholic. When she got to college, she abandoned her faith completely. She married an atheist, and she began writing books about a vampire rock star and ultimately made millions and millions of dollars. And so it like rocked our culture and the media when Anne Rice came out and said that she had returned to Christianity. She, wanted, she was a Christian again. She had become a Christian. And everybody's like, why? Whoa, what's going on? And she began to write new novels. And one of her books, it's really good, Christ the Lord Out of Egypt. In the prologue of that book, she unveils kind of the process that led her back to Jesus. And she talks about the scholarship that she was encountering with people that contradicted the Bible who did not want to submit to the authority of the scriptures. And here's what she says. Their main thesis was that the biblical documents we have are not historically reliable. She was amazed. She said, I'm amazed at how weak their arguments were. Some books were no more than assumptions piled on top of assumptions. Conclusions were reached on the basis of little or no information at all. The whole the whole case for the non-divine Jesus who stumbled into Jerusalem and somehow got crucified, that whole picture which was floated around the liberal circles that I frequented as an atheist for 30 years, that case was not made. Not only was it not made, I discovered in this field some of the worst and most biased scholarship I'd ever read. So she did her homework. She decided to say instead of just 
doing what everybody says, I'm going to understand. Hey, she came to the conclusion, the Bible can be trusted. It's historically reliable. If it can be trusted, then what it says, we should listen to. And she learned that what it says is that I should submit all of my life to its authority. What it says, how I should live. It's not a rule book. It's, 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 a, it's a love letter from a God who loves and cares for his children and wants them to obey him. And the reason we don't like authority, we buck up against it, is because we somehow think that the absence of restrictions is somehow freedom. Like, if we have no restrictions, then we really experience freedom in this world. And look, you know that's not true. It's not the absence of restrictions that leads to freedom. It's the presence of the proper restrictions that leads to freedom. It's allowing certain things to govern and rule over us. And so I'm I'm going over the sermon last night. I'm just kind of thinking through it. I'm sitting in my living room. I've got a one-year-old named Noah. Almost one year old. He'll be one in a, in a, a week or so. And uh, he's crawling around. It's a really fun age, right? He's crawling around. And, and it, today is my oldest son's birthday. He turns 10 today. And so last night, my wife's wrapping some things. And Noah goes crawling over and he picks up a piece of paper, like plastic wrapping paper. And if you know anything about one year old, you know anything that touches their hand goes where? In their mouth. And naturally, Noah wanted to put it in his mouth. And thinking about the sermon, I thought, well, freedom means I shouldn't have any restrictions on him. So go ahead, buddy. You just eat that plastic. I would never want your dad to be someone who restricted your freedom. And so I stepped away. Yeah, just do your thing. No. No, I grabbed the paper out of his hand, and he was frustrated. He slammed his hand down. He wanted the, he wanted the paper. He wanted to chew on the paper. And he wasn't going to be allowed to chew on the paper. Why? Because I can see what he can't see. And the proper restrictions in his life led to life. And if he had the choice, if I could help him understand the clarity of what he was submitting to in that moment, I think if he could choose life or chewing plastic, he might choose life. I think he would choose life. And so the presence of the proper restrictions that would lead to life. This is the same thing with like our kids. When I go in to wake my kids up in the morning, okay, maybe you guys have this uh, this issue too with your kids. My kids are at an age now, my older ones, where they like to sleep longer. So we go in to wake them up for school, and my kids say, you know, Dad, I'm not feeling it today. You know? Like, I'm, let me tell you, look, it's hard for me. I can't even listen to the teacher all the way. And like, do you know we only get one hour for like free time and recess? So like, I'm not, this isn't my thing today. I'm out. All right? Well, yeah, absolutely. Sorry. Go back to sleep. And no, right? You get up and get dressed. You're going to school. Why? Because it's not the absence of restrictions that leads to your kid's freedom and well-being. It's the presence of the proper restrictions. And as a parent, we have to teach our kids that. And the same thing's true of the scriptures. As we read it, we learn, I have to submit to its authority in my life. And I might not see everything at first, but God always makes things more and more clear as we go. The last part of the acronym and you can see it spells SCAN, so sufficiency, clarity, authority, and now necessity. Right? The Bible talks about this concept of general revelation, okay? and it's talked about in Romans chapter 1, this idea that throughout creation, you can see that there's a God. All you have to do is look around. You can see a God. But general revelation is not enough to save you. Okay? You need the Scriptures, because the Scriptures point to the Savior, They point to Jesus. They elevate Jesus. They make much of Jesus. They clarify Jesus. The Bible is about Jesus. And so you have a deep need to understand and to read and to love the Bible because it's going to lead you to your Savior. Now, this hits home to me too because I didn't grow up in a Christian home. And so it wasn't like uh, this idea of being a Christian was passed on to me, okay? 
I had no connection to the gospel until I was a senior in high school. And so I wasn't told or modeled how to be a Christian or anything. Now, I, I be, uh, I'm a Christian now, obviously, and I teach at a Christian school one day a week. And I have these students who grew up in great Christian homes, and so they're living this Christian life because it was passed down to them. Look, when I went to Bible college, I couldn't stand preacher's kids. They were the most annoying kids, right? And now I have four of them, okay? <laughs> and so it's, it's kind of hard, right? But, but the, the difficulty there is that my kids would live the Christian life because it's what dad said or what dad did or because they love their dad. I don't want my kids following Jesus because they love me. I want my kids following Jesus because they love him. And in order to love him, they've got to love his word. And they've got to read it. I can't just teach my kids what the Bible says. I have to teach my kids how to read the Bible. I have to model it for them. I have to show them over and over and over again. Is this an important part of my life? If so, can they tell? So the question I have for you about the necessity is this. Does your life demonstrate your need, your necessity for the word of God? I'm not perfect at this. I'm not up here telling you, do what I do. Don't do what I do. My kids know I read the Bible because we put food on the table. I get paid to read it, okay? And really, it's okay. It's funny, but like that's my job, right? But when I look back at our interactions in the home, like do they, have, do they know where dad sits in the morning? And do they see me reading it? Look, when you sit and read the Bible in your home during family times, yes, it's for you, but it's also what you're passing on to them, okay? And it's what you model. It's the necessity to be in the Word of God. They have to see you. They have to know that this is an important thing in your life as well. And so what do we do now? We get it, Rob, I understand. So, like, I understand why we believe it. I understand a lot of what we believe about the Bible now. You know, it's sufficiency and the clarity and the authority, the necessity. We believe the Bible. What do we do going forward? I just want to give you two things that when you leave here, you could, you could use in your life, okay? Two simple things. The first is pretty, pretty profound. Read the Bible. <laughs> just read the Bible, Right? When I wanted to become a better preacher, and you're like, wanted to, <laughs> I know, I still want to, um, I read all the books on preaching I could get my hands on. I listened to so many different preachers and podcasts and sermons. I still do. I love it. One of the guys that I came across that just really had an impact on me, his name is Tim Keller. And I listened to his classes, read his books, listened to his sermons, and one of the most profound things I heard him say about preaching was this, you want to be a good preacher? Preach more sermons. I mean, he didn't say, go understand theological truth. All that's true, he said, but you want to get good at preaching, preach more sermons. And you know this is true. You want to get good at most things, you spend time doing them, right? Last week, we talked about the role of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit speaks to us, encourages us. Jesus in John 14 said that the primary way the Holy Spirit's going to work is he's going to bring what I've said to the front of your mind. So the primary way God speaks to you is what? It's through his word. The Holy Spirit brings to the front of your mind and your heart what God has already said in his word. And so here, here's the thing. We might be looking, I want new, I want new, I want new. And the Bible's saying, I'm sufficient, it's enough, it's right here. Just spend more time right here. Spend more time in this book, spend more time. Here's what I want you to know about reading the Bible. The more time you spend reading the Bible, the more prepared and the more easily you will hear the voice of God as he speaks to you through what he said. Now, you might be thinking, hey, where do I start, Rob? I don't even know where to start with reading the Bible. What is the first thing I need to think about? I did a little bit of research. Most Bibles that you can get your hands on contain, of Scripture, uh, roughly 1,500 pages. So let's just say 1,500 pages. Maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less. The average pace in America, the average American could read through the Bible in about 70 hours. 
Not straight. It's not the challenge for this week, I promise. Okay? <laughs> but divide that up. About 12 minutes a day or an hour and a half a week. If you did 12 minutes a day or an hour and a half a week, you could read through the whole Bible in a year. Easily. Think about that. 12 minutes a day to listen to what he has to say to you. So where do I start? Well, you could start jumping in the Read Scripture app, which is this thing that we use. You can find about it on our website. That's fine. But you don't have to. Maybe you don't want to jump in where we're at in the Read Scripture app. Let me make a recommendation to you. Start with the Gospel of John. Read through the Gospel of John, and every time you read the word faith or belief, just underline it and ask, what is he talking about? Believing in and faith in. Just read through the Gospel of John. Then maybe move to 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Maybe another Gospel, then maybe the Read Scripture app. Here's the point. God has a plan to interact with you intimately as you read his word. So read his word. Start. Take a step. Move forward. Spend time in God's word. The second thing is this. Apply what you read. Read the Bible. Do what it says. It's not complicated, but that doesn't make it easy, right? It can be kind of hard. Andy Stanley famously said this, unapplied truth is like unapplied paint. If I buy a paint to paint my house and I bring it into the room and drop it in the middle room and I say, I did good, and my wife would say, no, you didn't, dum-dum. Now you have to apply the paint to the wall, like, right? You can't just have paint. Unapplied truth is like unapplied paint. If you don't do anything with it, what good is it? Let me illustrate for you this way. Suppose I'm the CEO of a, a large company, okay? And you work at the company. You're one of the employees. It's a global company, and so I have to do some traveling to represent the company. So I'm coming up on one of my longest trips. I'm going to be going all over the place. So I grab you, and I say, hey, I'm going on a really long trip, but don't worry. While I'm gone, you're going to have everything you need. I'm going to write you an email every single day. Every day I'm going to tell you, kind of make sure that we have some synergy going, and I'm going to tell you everything I need you to do while I'm gone. And as a matter of fact, gather everybody. I gather every employee in the company, and I look at them and I say, hey, I'm going, but don't worry. I'm going to write you an email. And in this email, I'm going to just make sure that we have some synergy and we're connected to one another, but also that you know exactly what I want you to do while I'm gone. Does everybody understand? Everybody says, we understand. Yep, we're in. That's good. And so I leave on the trip. And sure enough, I write you an email every single day. You work at this company, you get an email from me every single day, you get this email. And it tells you everything that I would want, everything that my heart would desire for the company while I'm gone, okay? So then, after a long, long trip, I come back. As I pull into the uh, parking lot, I notice there's grass growing up in the cracks of the parking lot. And I'm like, that's different. And I turn another corner in the parking lot, and I see there's trash blowing everywhere in the parking lot. And I'm like, man, what is going on here? I walk into the office, and the receptionist doesn't even know that I'm in the room. because She's too busy painting her nails, watching a show on Netflix on her laptop behind the desk, and she's just hanging out. And I'm kind of startled by that. I look over, and there's a group of guys that play in the fantasy football league for the company, and they're talking about the Super Bowl that night. And who's going to win? Is it going to be the Eagles or the Patriots? And we want the Eagles to win, but they're playing Tom Brady. We know how that's going to go. And so they're arguing and talking about it. I look over at your office, and I see that you're in the office, and you've got a group sitting around a TV, and you're playing video games, and you guys are laughing and having the time of your life. And finally, I just say, hey, hold on. What is going on? And you look up, and everybody looks up, and they're like, whoa, you're back. That's so awesome. We're so glad that you're back, man. We really missed you. I say, hey, I've, I've got a question for you guys. Like, did you get the emails that I wrote you? Yeah, we've got all the emails, every single one of them. You are a good writer. Like, man, we got your emails. As a matter of fact, we broke the team into small groups, and we studied your emails. Man, and the content was incredible. Good writing. And then we had another group that, man, they loved your writing so much, they actually memorized it. They memorized your emails. So good. Such good stuff. You're a great writer. And I say, well, hold on a second. Like, 
I got a question. Did you do anything about what I said in the emails? Do anything? No. But we studied them, we read every single one of them, and we memorized them. Well, that's not the point. The reason I wrote the emails is so that you would know what I wanted you to do in my absence. See, what was missing? Application. See, friends, if you want to live a life that leaves an incredibly godly legacy, you can't simply study and memorize the Bible. You have to obey it. You have to live it out. Last Sunday, Liz and Carla both heard from their Savior, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the legacy I want to leave. It's the legacy I want this church to leave. And if we're going to have a legacy that says, well done, we have to read it. We have to trust it. And we have to obey it. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the, the Bible. God, thank you that we live in a culture where we have so much access to it. We can turn on our phones or our laptops or we can have multiple sizes, translations, different fonts, all kinds of things, and it's just right at our fingertips all the time. Many of us own multiple Bibles in our homes. And God, we thank you because that's a gift. But Father, we ask that we would not take that gift for granted, that we would not ignore what the Bible says, that we would not simply desire it and, and memorize it and study it, but that we would apply it and live it out. God, that we would be a people that have a deep love for your word because we know how it transforms and changes us as we live it out. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.